0: Friends, um, let me uh, welcome once again a friend of this congregation, uh, Dr. Cynthia Rigby, professor at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, has come to offer us again a gift of another sermon. Um, and I want to say that um, at this time of year when all the students are moving into the seminary and you're trying to prepare for a new semester, we are so grateful that you've taken this time with us. and. Um, We will keep your students and you in our prayers as this week starts of new beginnings. Please help me to welcome Dr. Rigby. Thank you, Pastor Stacy. It's always a joy to be here at Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church. Uh, And thank you for coming out in the rain today. I'd like to quote from you our second reading Romans 12 verses 1 to 2. If it's okay I want to quote it from the King James Version because it is how I memorized it as a child with my father. My father's idea was that if the King James Version is good enough for Jesus and Paul it's good enough for us. (laughs) Let us listen again for God's word to us this morning. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren and sistren from the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might know the good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart gathered together in this place on this rainy day be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're talking this week as a pickup from last week on the theme of how having faith might be a little different than we expected. Often we associate having faith with being patient, maybe waiting for God to act, maybe letting go and letting God. And faith can mean all of those things, but sometimes it means being a little more assertive, like we saw last week with a Canaanite woman, sometimes to have faith means to be a bit pushy and today we're going to talk about leaning into the will of God not just waiting for God's will to come to fruition but sometimes we as people of faith are called to participate in it to lean so much into what God has promised that we actually help bring it to fruition my father-in-law was a picture taker, you know, the type, perpetually stopping you just as you're trying to do something, you know, trying to get in the car to go somewhere. You're trying to get out of the throngs of people who have graduated, to get away, to take off your robe, to get on to the next thing. Maybe even you're yawning. He liked to take pictures like that too. Chick. Take a picture of us yawning, which he thought was important to preserve for posterity. <laughs> My father in law could endure any number of complaints, sighs, ah, <sighs> right? Do you have to take that picture? Just hold on, it'll only take a minute, he would say. Chica, chica, chica. <laughs> it's tough to live as a photographer who likes to pose people in an age of selfies, I think. But my father-in-law endured and held out, all for the sake of keeping record so that later on we could remember and celebrate the many occasions of life. There are moments of life that don't need to be celebrated, we were fond of telling him, but he didn't always buy it, and I have to admit, sometimes he knew better. One of the favorite pictures of my husband and I is a picture, uh, I don't know, circa a long time ago, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Where he and I are each standing in front of our respective cars. Bill is in front of a, a very used blue Buick, and I am in front of my uh, spanking new first car I ever purchased, but inexpensive Nissan Sentra, a gold Nissan Sentra. And we're both standing there smiling, leaning, posed, you know, with our uh, elbows resting on the cars. And my father-in-law framed this picture and has under the cars his and hers. I happen to remember that I really didn't like my father-in-law very much when he was taking that picture because we were already late getting somewhere and it took him forever but I am so glad that he did." While it's obvious that pictures help us remember the past, it seems to me they also help us remember forward. Pictures of the past help us kind of remember the future. I look at pictures of my kids taken from before the day they could tie their own shoes, and it makes me think, now that they're teenagers, uh, where will they be five years hence? Where are they, what are these kids growing up to become into the future? I look out at you in the Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church congregation, and I kind of have a metaphorical photo album in my head, in the hard drive of my brain. Chick. I can see the Deerman class. Chick. I can see the Third Well class, other classes. I can remember watching um, Doug Fletcher preach and Peter Barnes and Mark Charbonneau, whose name I can't quite pronounce, and Al, who's here today, Mark Ramsey. I was in this room for Alyssa Seacrest's ordination. I was in this room many times for Austin Seminary Baccalaureate Services, and I remember one time this... Valentine's Day, when you had a special Valentine's Day program, and I was the speaker. And I thought, this is unusual to be invited to speak at a church on Valentine's Day. But it was the most wonderful event. You had people there who were coupled, people who were single. And we talked not only about our love for each other, but the love of God for all people. Chicka, chicka, chicka. No one was left behind that night. The pictures make me wonder, what's next for Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church? I know you're wondering that too. Uh, What does God have in store for the next years of your time as a congregation? Of course we want the future, our personal future, the future of our church, the future of our seminary, to be picture perfect we want to be successful and happy. We want our future to be retired and healthy. We want our children's future to be better than our own. We want our nation's future, some point, to be peaceful and strong again. Notice I didn't say great. Trying to be bipartisan, but we want our country to be strong. I like think we can all agree and peaceful. Our church's future, how would we describe it? Our church's future, future. chika. Do we want it to be efficient and reliable? Do we want it to be packed out and happening? Do we want it to be risk-taking and maybe a little edgy, controversial? Chika, chica, chica What picture will it be? How do we decide what picture we want anyway? And how do we begin leaning toward it so that the picture becomes the reality, the actuality of our existence? We Christians believe there is no better future that we can imagine for ourselves than the future God has promised is already in store for us. Our future, we believe, is in residence in the kingdom of God where the Bible says lions and lambs lie down together, where every tear will be wiped away from every eye, where every stomach will be full and every child will have shelter, where there will be no more fear or flooding or pain or war. But how do we get from here to there? And I want to ask, what does that mean about what we should be doing next on a day-to-day smaller scale as we try to take a step further toward this kingdom future we're trying to lean into? How do we know what step to take that will get us closer to what God has promised? What step, by the way, does God want us to take and how can we come to know it? I'd be inclined, I think, to answer this question with a shoulder shrug and kind of a pious-sounding comment that, well, we can't know, can we? Life is a bit of a mystery. We have to let go and let God. We have to trust and obey and wait patiently for God to act. What's interesting and challenging is that this isn't what Paul says in our text for today. Paul doesn't remind us that we have to kind of hang in there and be patient since we can't know what God is up to until it happens. On the contrary, Paul tells us that we can know, we can know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? I'll be in the back when we leave church. You can fill me in. Because our default setting, for good reason, sometimes is to say, I don't know. Right? How exactly are we supposed to know? And Paul has an answer to this too. It's fairly concrete. He says, we know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. By not being conformed to this world, he says, by being rather transformed by the renewing of our minds, by offering ourselves, he says, as living sacrifices. What is a living sacrifice anyway? I thought sacrifices were supposed to be dead, living sacrifices. Someone who seems to give us a little help with this is the biological mother of Moses. She's a Hebrew woman whose name we're not told in the text that we read. There's a law in Egypt where she lives that the that the boy children born to Hebrew women are to be killed. It's the Pharaoh's rule. The backstory to the story we read that is also in the biblical witness is that a lot of the Egyptian midwives refused to kill the boy babies. They just pretended that they weren't around when the boys were born um, in order to uh, not commit that sin of murder. They were brave women. And Moses, it seems, actually didn't call a midwife, according to the story. She birthed Moses, and then she hid him for three months trying to imagine that since people lived in fairly close quarters in those days, how do you hide a baby for the first three months of their of its life? But finally, it got to be too much, so she puts Moses in a basket and brings him down to the river, and we might think that's a kind of last ditch effort, but it seems pretty smart, calculated, intentional, strategic, because she has her own daughter who seems to share in the wisdom and audaciousness of her mother. Her own daughter waits until Pharaoh's daughter comes. And before you know it, Moses is back home being raised by his bio mom and then later gets into to move into the Pharaoh's palace, for goodness sakes, with his adoptive mom. Not a bad legacy, this Moses. chica. Chica, Chica. Who would have thought that the next pictures, when this boy baby was born to a Hebrew woman whose name we don't know, who would have thought the next pictures would be of Moses being able to return home and then later living in the house of Pharaoh. What deadly pictures at that point of his birth might we have imagined that he would be killed, we might have thought, that the baby isn't going to survive the bulrushes in a river. What baby could survive that, we might have guessed? That this girl, his big sister, is going to get into serious trouble with the royal court if she is found out. But the mother doesn't seem to be focused on such devastating images. I like to imagine her instead with an iPhone full of pictures from the past that segue her to a beautiful future. I'm thinking she has a picture of Abraham looking up at those stars with God saying, so shall your descendants be. I'm thinking she has a picture on her phone of Joseph, who becomes a leader in Pharaoh's court, even though he starts out as a slave. I figure that the that Moses's bio mom uh, has these pictures, and they are what enable her to lean into a different picture for her son than the one that is the actuality of her circumstances. She's able to imagine the good and acceptable and perfect will of God and lean into it, acting accordingly. Her actions actually take a step toward that which God has promised and her actions actually help to bring what God has promised to fruition. Like the Canaanite woman last week, Moses' mother doesn't sit around waiting for God to act. She acts on the basis of who she believes God to be and what she believes God has promised. There's lots of psychological evidence that we're able to take more productive action in our lives, in our personal lives, and also in our corporate lives together, when we have a positive picture of the future in mind. Even if it's true that we need to face reality, and even if it's true that reality is very often grim, laying aside promise and possibility for the sake of being realistic can be a recipe for the bad stuff to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I have a brother named Scott, who is a psychologist. He specializes in something called motivation theory, which is like it, like it sounds, it's about motivation. He's done some work lately with a, with a major investment company. Uh, the funny thing about that is he's not a financial specialist, But this company brought him in because they were trying to figure out how to motivate people to save money for retirement. My brother asked them, well, tell me what your pitch is to people to get them to save. And so they told him that they ask people when they plan to retire and for how many years they're planning on being retired. My brother said, well, you're basically asking them, when are you going to die? Right? When are you going to retire? How many years are you planning on being retired? He said, and people don't want to think about that as their future, the picture of the future. As realistic, I mean, what could be more realistic, right? As realistic as it is, it is not motivating. That's why people are avoiding you. As soon as you ask those questions, they're trying to get out of the way. What if instead, he told them, you try to help them imagine snapshots of what their ideal retirement would look like and then try to get them to to save money in order to lean into making those images a reality. The Apostle Paul, I think, has... His pitch to us down pat because he believes with all his heart that God has something wonderful in store that our future is full of goodness beauty joy love and peace Paul is sure of this I wonder what kinds of pictures he would have taken if he had had an iPhone wouldn't it be great if Romans could be illustrated? <laughs> Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Okay? Chica, chica. Here's a picture of what a living sacrifice looks like. <laughs> do not be conformed to this world. Chica, chica, chica. Okay? Here's some pictures of what you shouldn't do if you, if you don't want to be conformed to the world. These are the no no pictures. Okay? And how about this one? Chica. Here's what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God looks like. Wait a minute. I don't think that took. I think something's wrong with my, my phone. I think I'm out of space. If Paul had had a camera, could Paul have captured the perfect will of God in a photo? Maybe. Maybe he has some images where he talks in other places about being members together of the body of Christ. The people of God living together in unity. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, living together without bickering, without judging each other. Those are pretty beautiful images that are very motivating especially if we yearn for a world that is at peace, a world that is characterized by the kind of love and relationships that we claim are at the center of who God is and who we are made in God's image. The challenge is no single one of these pictures could be used to illustrate the Romans text or set in a photo album or posted in a slideshow from an iPhone as the only and always applicable will of God. In other words, even if we are holding an image of God's bountiful future strongly in mind, God's will for right now, for today, for tomorrow, and for next year still has to be hashed out. The specifics of it have to be worked on. We have to keep on... Arguing sometimes and deliberating and having meetings and processes (laughs) and praying, right? We have to do those things to figure out together as a community what it is that God wills, but maybe not in the long term, but in the short term. See, maybe we can have the image of what God wants long term In view at all times so that whatever decisions we make are leaning into what it is that God has promised then we'll know I think what the good and acceptable work of God I mean will of God is it takes work not to be conformed to this world it takes work to check ourselves to be sure we have the interests of one another at heart it takes work to not push for decisions that give us the most security and power. It takes effort to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to engage in the kind of study and reflection that will enable us to discern what God is up to and lean into it. As it turns out, knowing the good, acceptable and perfect will of God is something different, very different than deciding the best course of action or engaging in best practices. To be transformed instead of conforming to the world might well mean that we take the less recommended course of action or that we start a new practice that hasn't been tried, tested, and labeled as best. Someone has said that the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep jumping off the altar. And it's no wonder we keep jumping off given the effort it takes to be transformed, given the work it takes to keep on discerning the will of God in each moment, in every circumstance. Conformity to the world would be more efficient and less risky. But what we would be giving up is nothing less than everything God wants to give us and everything God calls us to be. Heirs together with Christ of the peaceable kingdom of God partners with him in the ministry of reconciliation in the world, but not of it. Those whose lives are devoted to serving others, even as God in Christ serves us. May God grant us the grace to lean into God's good and acceptable and perfect will. May God's spirit strengthen us to stay on the altar and resist conformity to the world. May the God who is Christ guide us in service. Chika, chika, chika. Let us lay claim to the beautiful future God has promised, leaning into it as we take action on this very day, and let the people of God say Amen.